Hello, dear listeners, friends of the podcast, people who've accidentally digitally stumbled into it, and those of you wondering why on earth you're here, pull up a chair, get cosy, um, find a little bit of time to take the next sort of bit of your life and think about what's going on with food in our world. So, um, those of you who are new to the Madam's Cast, welcome. Those of you who are old to the Madam's Cast, can't believe you keep coming back, but please uh, be welcome as well, and thanks for coming. Exciting guests uh, this time round. Uh, it's not very often that we have a baker on the show, and I think the last baker that we had might actually have been our friend Noni Dwyer down in the Australian land. Um, and so I'm excited to tell you that we have a baker today, although she's got a lot more going on than just that. So it'd be interesting to have a chat with her. And I am, of course, alluding to KJ or Kirsten, if you prefer, from KJ's Bothy Bakery up in Granton on Spay. KJ, are you there at the other end of the internet? I certainly am. Wow. Here I am. First, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Excellent. First hurdle jumped, the internet's working. That's always a relief. Um, KJ, welcome. Um, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. Thanks for having me. And, That's okay. Uh, thanks very much, Lynn, for the nomination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So I did pop and see Lynn from Limbreck Croft, which is, I think they only bought it because it matched her name. Um, and I went to see her at the weekend to check out her polytunnel and have a chat about a future event. Uh, and uh, she was looking a bit sheepish. So I think she's aware that she's, um, you know, her nomination has dropped you in it here and you're Absolutely. joining us. Absolutely. Oh. I know I'm going to make her give me some beetroot for putting me through this. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, you know, if, if that's not a brilliant bit of bartering, I don't know uh, what is uh, a beetroot penalty for nomination for the Madam's cast. Um, but I like it. I like it when people who are nominated agree to come on. It, it sort of adds a bit of fun to the whole thing, uh, gives it an element of continuity. Um, right. You know what the score is, KJ. You know what you have to do. But before you get to change your three things that you'd like to change about the world of food... We need to know a little bit more about you because um, you don't, for a start, sound altogether all that Scottish for someone who runs a bakery in the heart of the Cairngorms. No, no, I'm originally a Kiwi, uh, but I've been living in Scotland for about 20 years now. Um, so I actually sound quite Australian, which is quite upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. Hold on. Now, this happened... I was leading a foraging day for some lovely whiskey guests during the Spirit of Speyside Festival. And a lady uh, from New Zealand, I might have intimated that she was from Australia and that did not go well. So what is this animosity between the Australians and the New Zealanders? I don't know. It's just bred into us. It's just it's just there. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Even my mum, she's uh, she's Australian. Well, she was born in Australia and I still have it built into me. Okay. Um, okay. But then when you're over in the UK, we all love each other because we're all from down down that way. All right. So it, so it, once you've moved hemispheres, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the problem goes away. Okay. Well, maybe that's why um, that's maybe that's why so many Antipodean friends like to make the United Kingdom their home. Absolutely. So yeah, I don't know. There's something going on with the whole like Kiwi accent and then learning some Scottish words. And then uh, we just, well, I have just seemed to have picked up some sort of strange twang. <laughs> well, I think you always sound friendly, excited and engaging when I see you. So, you know, let's just not worry about where that sounds like it's coming from. Let's just rejoice the positivity of it. Absolutely. Sounds great. You must have got me on a good day then, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was someone else altogether. Mm. Someone Excellent. pretending to be me. Right. Okay. So, uh, so you're from the other side of the planet. Um, yep. Tell us how you know, without you know, going into a sort of nine-hour monologue. Tell us how you got from there to here. How you ended up uh, in Aviemore, first of all. I think running um, the world's most famous uh, ba um, cafe, and then uh, from there, you know, just just give us a quick synopsis so we know who we're talking to. Because I know who you are. I know a bit of your background. But the listeners out there, they're thinking, Tim, let the poor woman speak. But before you do, we need to know who she is. <laughs> uh, okay. So I trained as a chef in New Zealand when I was uh, very young. And well, pretty much straight after leaving school. 
uh, went to one of the best catering colleges, well, in my opinion, in New Zealand. Um, that was for about three or four years. I did a big competition, uh, Tote Door, uh, and the team that I was in, we took out the gold and we won it. That gave me a chunk of money. Um, and that gave me enough to buy a one-way ticket to the UK. The chef that had trained me uh, set me up in a couple of really good places that I could choose to work in. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up in the UK. Uh, I did a year and a half in London. Uh, and then I came up to Aviemore for a weekend skiing. And I'm still here 20 years later. Amazing. <laughs> Where were you working in London for 18 months? Uh, so I worked for Annie O'Carroll, um, who was Peter Gordon from the Sugar Club sous chef. Mm -hmm. um, she had a little place uh, called Luca in Surbiton. Um, and I also worked in Tate Britain in their fine dining restaurant. Oh, my goodness. When was that? Uh, 2000. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. We were in town at the same time. That's scary. Oh, my goodness. That is scary. That is scary. Oh, and um, interesting that, that the name of the Sugar Club book should come up because um, we had another New Zealand based chef, or I think she's from New Zealand, but now lives in Tasmania. Uh, okay. Maybe she was Australian. I don't want to make that mistake again. Let's just go. She's Tasmanian. And um, her name is um, Gregory, not her okay. first name, that's her second name. And she listed the Sugar Club book as a uh, as her book for the nomination. Oh, right. So that's quite interesting. I know her because I used to work for her dad, uh, Mark Gregory, uh, when he was running a hotel in London. Anyway, I've gone completely on my own sort of private little reminiscent journey. So I <laughs> it's amazing how It's amazing how London town does that to you when you've been a chef, though. There's so many. It's such a small world. Yeah, I think it's the PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the urge, the urge to drink heavily, is suddenly upon me. Okay, so uh, we got as far as Aviemore. You've been skiing for the weekend. You never left. Let's pick it up there. Uh, yeah, so uh, it was uh, two thousand and one. No, two thousand and two, and it was the year that Aviemore had the most amazing winter and the most amazing skiing. And I thought that's what Scotland was. <laughs> uh, and I decided to have a wee break from cooking. I was pretty burnt out, to be honest. Uh, mm -hmm. Before London, I'd worked in Chewton Glen for six months. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Um, and that been pretty full on. Uh, that was what I came over to do. So that was, as you can imagine, pretty tough. Yeah. Uh, and I worked uh, days at the Tate and then evenings for Annie. Um, they were two completely different styles of cooking and yeah. it was just really up my straight, uh, up my street because I could do this fine dining thing in the daytime and then I'd get straight on a train, I'd go to Annie's um, and I'd be doing this sort of fusion food and it was really rustic um, and completely different uh, than what I'd sort of been training to do. Um, so I got to Aviemore and I was really burnt out and just needing a bit of a break, to be honest, mm -hmm. and decided to put cooking to the side for a bit. And I got a job in an outdoor shop and uh, I met my husband who was working in another outdoor shop and started doing outdoorsy things, which I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. um, and it just sort of went from there. Six months later, we were engaged. A year after that, we were married. Yes. And uh, 2004, I was working in the shop below the mountain calf. And I would spend my days moaning at the, the team that I was working with in the shop saying, if I had that place, I would do this, this and this. And I'd have great coffee and I'd blah, blah, blah. And they'd all roll their eyes at me and just go, God, <laughs> she harps on. Uh, and it just happened that it came up for let and they all pushed me that I should go for it. And, uh, one thing led to another and I was holding the keys to the mountain cafe at the age of, I think I was 25 or 26. Um, I'd only ever been a chef to party. So it was a bit of a shock to the system. I'd never been a boss <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was a pretty steep learning curve and, uh, 16, 17 years later, here we are. Amazing. Amazing. And then, like so many other uh, brilliant, vibrant, independent businesses, COVID came along and killed you off. Yeah, COVID was, yeah, 
COVID was the final nail in the coffin. Um, as many people are aware, um, it had been a pretty tough couple of years leading up to COVID for us. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband had been diagnosed with myeloma, um, a type of blood cancer. And we'd been going through about two years of treatment as well as running the calf and just various things um, because I was having to take a back uh, step a wee bit and go down to Edinburgh for treatment with him. My staff costs were ghastly. They were sitting at about 50% because I was having to cover myself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We'd had to have days where we were closed. We were shutting two days a week to make sure the team all got days off. So we weren't sitting in the best of financial situations because of that. Yeah. Um, and then COVID came along and it was just like, wow, this really, you know, it just kicked us in the guts, really. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that, uh, well, you know, I'm very sorry to hear that, obviously. But, um, you know, that's, uh, that's an incredible story of resilience at the same time as, as one of hardship. Uh, and, and I think it's the side of business people never tell you about. You know, you pour your life and soul into it and then something else happens in your life. Yeah. And there's no backup, you know, there's no one else there to look after it for you. It, you know, it demands as much of your attention as it can possibly have. And that, that has its and issues. You just never prepare yourself with these, these things. You know, um, at the time, just before COVID, um, we'd done things like we'd invested heavily in a whole heap of merchandise for the business. Mm. Um, we'd also ordered a second um, print run of our cookbooks and that was about five and a half, ten grand worth of cookbooks sitting in storage. Yeah. Oh. Um, you know, and it's just all those things that you don't really see as a customer. You just see this really busy cafe that everyone thinks is really successful and, and it is really successful and was really successful, I should say. Um, but there's just these things going on in the background that you're you're just not quite aware of. Yeah, yeah. Well, life, like Instagram, is not all about the good pictures. Yes, <laughs> totally. A lot going on behind. <laughs> okay, okay. So, uh, so all of that happened. COVID came along and was the final straw, if you like, on the camel's back. Yeah. And so you decided to just put your feet up and take it easy for a bit. Uh, absolutely. You know, just semi-retirement and all that. <laughs> now, how did that uh, turn out? <laughs> yeah, it didn't go too well. I'm a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us what you're doing now. Uh, so well, when COVID hit, we um, we owed local suppliers. So we're really heavily into buying locally, supporting locally. Um, and I was determined not to go under and go bankrupt. So I decided to start cooking from my house um, and baking from the house. And I think in the first month of two of us baking from the house, we sold two and a half thousand slices of millionaire's shortbread. Cool. And in, well, basically we cooked out of the house for six months uh, and we paid all of the local suppliers' bills off and a bit of the overdraft that we'd, we'd built up. And it just sort of opened my eyes up to actually we're not going to reopen the cafe and go in with 20 staff and this huge uncertainty, especially what was, with what was going on in my personal life. Um, so an industrial unit came up in Grandtown and I just thought, you know what, we're going to go for that. Um, it was a third of the rent we'd been paying in Aviemore, uh, and it was it was a huge gamble, but it's turned out really well. You know, I'm a chef, not a baker, uh, so it's very much every day is a school day for me at the moment. And uh, it's going really well. So we're a year and a half into to running this bakery and slowly more savoury food is now creeping in again because I'm missing cooking. <laughs> mm. Well, I have to say, you know, I, the sandwiches are uh, being a sort of, uh, I've I found myself of late making up excuses to, to be in Granton so that I can pop in for a sarni and a coffee. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I get that. I think there's, I'm more of a savoury than a sweet person too. And I think, you know, that is what makes a great bakery for me. Um, you know, that selection of things, the tarts and the sandwiches and the, you know, and the flavours you're putting in and the combinations you're doing are pretty out there too. But it's all based on and founded upon a square understanding of how to make a sourdough loaf. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, Megan and I have both been working really hard on uh, getting our, our sourdough really good. Um, our starter, which we've named Pineapple because he was built with a little bit of uh, pine unsweetened pineapple juice to get him going. Nice. Um, so he's our baby and he's doing really well. 
um, when I, I kind of feel like part of the reason why the bakery has worked so well was um, to me being a chef and I'm sure it's the same for you mate is just you're always learning and you're always looking at that next thing you can learn and I was just really lucky that about five years ago I went off to San Francisco for a few weeks and did an intensive bread and baking sourdough course so we could start making our own breads at the calf. Was that at the That was at the Institute of San Francisco Baking. And uh, I, I never imagined that that would be the thing that would save us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just worked out really well, you know. Um, so, and it, it's just been really lovely. We're so lucky living here in Grand Town. We've got an amazing community around us and it's just, it's, it's so nice to go from being in a really busy cafe where we were cooking three, 350 meals a day at some point yeah. to now running this like small community bakery with a team of about five of us. And you know everyone by name, you know them by what they order. Um, they tell you that, you know, I had a, a customer the other day saying, that his wife had made country bread and it was really good and now she's bought the recipe in for me and we're going to have a crack at it and it's just really lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is something about that vibe, you know, when you're part of the community there doing your thing and people are walking in and, you know, buying a loaf or a half loaf, taking a few things away, getting something for their kids, bringing you an idea, turning up with a basket of, wild garlic or something yes. you know uh, and i know i think the first time i came across you was in gilly basson's book um where you have a a recipe for a a nettle bread and i was yeah. like that's amazing i've i've made a nettle soda bread a lot but i've never made a fermented nettle bread so i'm excited to have a have a go at that and that was mm -hmm. when i sort of um stumbled over you as it were yeah. okay oh amazing so Oh, right. So, well, you know, it is a small place in a limited capacity, but if anyone out there is passing Granton, um, it is worth sliding in, I can tell you, to find <laughs> a little treat or two uh, from the Boffy Bakery and say hi to KJ while you're there. Um, however, it's feeling like time to tackle the thorny issues of the day, and that is your three things that you'd like to change about the world of food. Um I know you get the concept, but effectively, we're going to step from this world into another one. It's exactly the same as the one we're leaving. We're using Tim's Magic Vortex to get there. And when we're in there, we realize it's more malleable than the old world we've just left behind. And you can change three things to do with the world of food. And they can be, uh, you know, big things. They could be small things. It could be the size of a wagon wheel. I don't know what the what the thing is that's getting your goat up at the moment, but you've got three shots at it. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what they are. I will discuss them, and then we'll move on to the next one. All good with you? Yep, sweet as. Awesome. Okie dokie. In which case, let's go. What is point number one from Kirsten? <laughs> right, I'm going to try and not be too much of a ranty chef. Fail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I have really been coming across a lot is we've got four students from the local high school coming in and working with us. And I've been really intrigued to see the different levels that they're at and their capabilities and that's got me thinking about schooling. Now, the school we have here in Grandtown is amazing. I'm not slagging it off at all. Um, for me, school was horrific. And I think it's probably the same for a lot of chefs. Um, most of us are dyslexic. Um, most of us have had a really hard time uh, through the schooling system. And I think that we could make schooling uh, much more exciting and approachable and less curriculum based. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that I think with that is home ec has got to come back. Mm -hmm. um, and it's got to come back with a vengeance as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I've been going in and doing a wee bit of stuff um, with the home ec teachers here in Grandtown and they're just fabulous. But sadly, there's just not enough funding and money in the pot to give them what they deserve. Um, so for me, 
I think going back to basic with cookery school, uh, uh, cookery skills, sorry. Um, Things like, even I see this with chefs, you know, um, people can't make a white sauce and they can't make a tomato sauce or even just cooking rice scares people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just feel that strip it right back to basics and just make sure that people can leave school um, with these basic things that I had, you know, I can remember I had an amazing home ec teacher uh, who could see that I was struggling in a lot of the subjects apart from the home ec. And she actually sent me off out into the big wide world in school time. And I went and worked in kitchens at the age of 14, 15. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. You know, yeah. even if I was just peeling spuds, it was letting me see these kitchens and it really got me thinking about going into catering and that's what I ended up going into. Um, And I just think, you know, as we get older, we learn more and more and I'm always trying to learn. Now here's me, this dyslexic Kiwi, um, who was told by my maths um, teacher that I was a miserable failure and that I shouldn't be allowed in his class. And I've written a cookbook um, and I've run a successful Um, cafe and I'm now training to become a baker Um, that could have broken me but I'm a stubborn bugger (laughs) (laughs) so so it didn't break me Um, it just made me want to learn more and once I found cooking um, that that was awesome and and you know I think through cooking I've learned about geography I've learned about history um, and I'm now doing maths and I'm doing costings and, you know, I just think that I'm not saying it has to just be about cooking, but I think finding more of those students in the school of what it is that they're interested in and building their learning around that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it it totally does. It totally does. So we're using this, um, bringing bringing a food element back to school really as part of a, a sort of broader reform of, of the curriculum system effectively Mm -hmm. and you won't find any argument from me on that i mean you know i uh much the same as yourself i didn't do brilliantly at school i was a smart ass um and uh but i couldn't i could you know i could barely write and i've since learned that my brain is not working in the same way as you know the majority of folks were at the time and and you find a huge amount of neurally diverse folk within the the rainbow that is the hospitality industry um, and I don't think the only reason for that is that they don't do well at school. Uh, I think there is an awful lot of attractive, you know, sensible procedural things that people find quite interesting when that creative sort of side comes to comes to the fore. Uh, and bringing food more to the fore at school, I mean, let's face it, we're looking at a big uh, cost of living crisis coming our way. Uh, food is, is a huge thing. We're I mean, talking on the radio all the time about people having to choose between Uh, keeping their homes warm and having enough to eat Um, and you know it's really difficult when you talk about this sort of stuff you can't you know you you can't try hard enough to not patronize right people are leading very very tough lives and making difficult decisions on a very very small budget but I can't help but think if they were better if if people were better educated about food at school and at home that, that that would that would be a real winning scenario for i mean you know i'm constantly amazed by how little you can eat for if you have a few basic skills so you get no argument from me about you know bringing food more centrally into into schools um i I think that's a great thing can you give us an example of one or two things you you might do to make that happen so i went up to gilly bashan's um a wee while back and she was teaching me about spice blending And Mm -hmm. she was telling me all about the Berber people and all about Nepalese people and their spices and the the spice trail. And then that got me reading more about it. And then suddenly there's this whole world of history and geography all combined in these spices that as a chef, I just totally took for granted. You know, even just peppercorns, you use them every day for seasoning, but I'd never thought Mm -hmm. about where it really came from the 
works that had gone in to get it into certain countries. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. And that has been amazing for me, what she's taught me. And I think if you could bring in some some things like that into school where people are hands-on um, blending these spices and, and, and things like that could just be incredible. Um, you know, also just bringing in um, a bit of writing and creative writing and writing about food and, and, and things like that, you know, that always grounds mm -hmm. me and I just think it could be incredible. Um, and one thing I definitely see a lot of is we do a lot of weighing out of our doughs and scone mixes and everything in advance. And mm -hmm. the kids at school, they help us with that. And time and time again, I'll give them a set of scales, I'll give them a recipe, I'll talk them through what to do. And you can see this look of fear of, right, so I have to weigh 1,110 grams. And I find myself saying to them, just think of it like money, 1,110 pounds. Um, and I, I just think using more practical school skills give people more confidence within their education. Yeah, and it's that, it, rather than overwhelming people when they can't learn thing one way, yes. you know, it shows them a different way, and that can help can help move them along. And yeah, I, I agree. I think school, I, I really try hard not to bash schools because I think you know they face an incredibly big challenge, Absolutely. Um, and they do seem to be turning around a little bit in terms of everything used to be you know purely driven towards getting off to university mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people are put off by that and if you're not academic you kind of fall by the wayside and definitely there's a bit more particularly in Scotland actually there seems to be a bit more engagement with um, you know the fact that you don't have to go to university there are lots of other things you can do with your life um, you know and, and practical skills you can find so I, th I think I'm always it's always a tricky one food and education because Yes, I would love to see a lot more of it in school, but I get, you know, that that, that, that comes from a policy change, really. Mm -hmm. It has to be funded well, and, and I think, you know, it is on its way. But um, as you say, and as you've so rightly shown with your couple of demonstrated ideas there, there's no end to the way that that can help, uh, you know, be tied into the, to, to the rest of education. I mean, you know, the humble peppercorn, a great example. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that. Okay. Um, uh, and also, of course, help 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 with people's health. But I won't sort of get us bogged down in that just now. So uh, that's a brilliant point. Number one, uh, more food at school. Uh, I, you know, I'm with you on that. You can have that. No drama at all. I'm um, looking forward to seeing that one come to life. It's been mentioned before on the Madam's Cast more than once, and um, I'm sure it will come up again and again. So food and school, point number one, you're there. Happy days. Or just out of interest, mm -hmm. uh, do you get a lot of people nipping down to the bakery from the school at lunchtime to come and get something? Yes, we do. We really do. And it's brilliant. And we've got a great relationship with the school. Uh, the teachers are brilliant. They all pop in. Some of the kids pop in, but it's probably a bit too far for them mm -hmm. to come. Um, but definitely after school as well. And I've seen it with some of the, the team that we've got, you know, sort of 17-year-olds, like one of our, uh, the, the one boy that we employ in the bakery um, came down the other day and sat outside and had an oat flat white and a focaccia sandwich. And I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, even just sitting eating on your own, it's just, I don't know, like for me traveling, I love traveling on my own and I'll happily sit and have a meal on my own in the evening. And I just think that people are so, um, they're so prone to having to be in a big group and being with mates and being on social media. And I just think the simple things like sitting and having a meal on your own is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It shows an independent strength of will. Okay, mm -hmm. right. So um, that's brilliant. Point number one, sorted. Point number two, what's the second thing you want to change about the world of food? <laughs> You're going to love this one, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right so i think there needs to be a big shift and uh, a big change in everyone's attitude towards hospitality workers oh yes please <laughs> okay, i'm gonna try and be journalistic and argue with you at some point in this one but okay, i mean awesome. i think you should give it to us uh, as well as you can first of all so i just feel that when I was training as a chef, and I'm not sure if it was the same for you because we trained in different parts of the world, there was a real pride in becoming a chef and there was a real pride in being in that hospitality world. It was seen as a career. Um, you know, that feeling of when you get your first necktie 
um, and your first crisp white uniform and, you know, your, your set of knives and everything. It was just, like, incredible. Um, and I think we've lost touch of that. I think chefing especially is seen as a stopgap as well as being a server. And I think you go to the continent and you see men who are in their 40s and 50s and it's a career to them um, and it's something to be really proud of and I think we've lost that in the UK and I think it needs to come back but it also needs to be supported by the general public of not looking down on us and not treating us like second-class citizens because we serve your tables. Mm. Mm told you I was going to get ranty. Uh, no, 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 that's that's good, right? That is good. And, and I wonder slightly if it's partly the industry's fault. Uh, absolutely. It's had it, you know, okay, okay, you're saying absolutely. Go Tell me why. Because I think that, oh, I don't know, actually. I'm now backing out. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, so this would be my wrap on it. I'd be like, okay, okay. the industry okay. for the last, uh, I've been in it for a little while, and I'm going to say, uh, that's at least 20 years. So I'm going to say for the last 20 <clears throat> something years, uh, we've been talking about this issue of being understaffed in the UK hospitality sector. Uh, you know, that's just been something we've always had. And it hasn't gone away. And there's been lots of ideas to improve it. But all the way along that, I've said, well, you need to improve people's lives in the hospitality industry. I mean, I love it. I'm in it. You know, I was getting, you know, okay money as a chef in London. London was an expensive place to live. So you were always never had enough money. And I don't see that, you know, necessarily having changed um, since I left London town or having worked in other places where I thought I'm probably not getting quite enough money for the amount of my life I'm giving to this business. That hasn't changed in 20 years. Why should the general public, you know, apart from common decency, show a higher level of respect for people whose own industry refuses to acknowledge their value in so many ways? So that's where I was about to say I do agree with you in that. So I think there needs to be a shift in the way that we treat ourselves as chefs and people in the industry you know we do need to um like so for example when i had the calf um it was an amazing busy place but i burnt people Mm -hmm. out so i was a pusher i always will be a pusher i worked my team really hard and when i had the opportunity to open up the bakery i made a decision that we'd only be open four days a week to the public Mm -hmm. that we would close for 35 days of the year so we would all take our holidays at the same time Mm -hmm. that the team would all get paid 35 days holiday per Mm -hmm. year Um, I pay well above the the living wage Um, we have two e-cargo bikes where we deliver bread so everyone takes turns at doing that now so we all get fresh air and we get out of the kitchen now they're just some of the wee things that I've done Mm -hmm. to try and make a difference to try and keep my team for longer Mm -hmm to look after my team and to also look after my own mental health because I don't know how many birthdays, weddings, everything I've missed out on in life. Um, I still struggle now to sit and have a lunch break. Um, I'm constantly wrapping everyone's knuckles that they need to go and have a proper meal and sit down, but I can't quite bring myself to do it for myself yet because I've not done that ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so I totally agree. We need to have more respect for ourselves um, and have more boundaries put in place. But I also feel that there needs to be a culture change. Um, you know, like, so one of the things I've sort of jotted down here for you is, you know, so many people call themselves chefs, but are they actually chefs? Because for me, I trained as long as a doctor or a vet would train, and I'm sure you're the same. Um, but now people work in a kitchen for six months and they call themselves a chef and I think it needs to be a bit more defined as to what a cook is and what a chef is or you know having levels of of servers yeah 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 and it is you know I think it is a sprat to catch a mackerel and fifth you know half half a dozen of one and six of another it is you know Mm. we 
the, yeah, okay, I totally with you, right? So the industry needs to follow your 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 line in my mind. You know, you're doing some great stuff. And actually, um, I was forwarded on LinkedIn uh, an advertisement uh, by some other people that I know down in Perthshire at Ballantaggart who are recruiting for their summer staff at the moment. And they've put together a great package. Okay, they're not, they're not paying... Um, a huge amount of money for young inexperienced workers but it is you know mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a fair amount of money and they're paying them five days a week they're working four and on the fifth paid day they get to go and do some training either uh, you know nice. so you know they go and visit a supplier or they learn to do something new or, or you know they're not in the core business and that struck me yeah. as something that i just thought brilliant you know absolutely brilliant if we are to put more people back into the hospitality industry which we really need to do have to mm -hmm. find these ways of doing it and the answer has always been and i'll never forget this my executive chef at one of my first jobs when i left school um i, I worked at, for a a place called center parks which is a kind of um, oh yeah I know yeah it, it's yep. a it's a glamorous caravan park scenario um mm -hmm. uh, well it's a bit more than that i don't want to get sued <laughs> <laughs> but effectively that's it and the standing joke for us all was don't you know this is a holiday park um so when i was there i was talking to the executive chef i think i probably i've been late for my breakfast shift or something which at the age of 17 and working 70 hours a week for seven grand i sort of felt a little bit disgruntled that i got into so much trouble mm -hmm. for being late for my breakfast shift uh my eighth day on the on the rotor or something and um so i perhaps wasn't being quite as subservient as i should have been and he said to me words i will never forget he said well that's the trade i'm afraid that's catering mm -hmm. and i just thought to myself at that point it's only ever going to be like that if you keep saying yeah. that you know we yeah, i mean that didn't stop me going off and totally getting sucked into it and <laughs> and going and doing it mm -hmm. along those lines for far too long but until mm -hmm. you change the structure of of the businesses it can't improve yeah. because every time there is a staff shortage or someone's off sick someone else has to cover it whereas if you've yes. planned to be shut and you've built some resilience in and you said okay we're only going to build our business model on being open four days a week if you do all mm. of those things then you're not building in the problems from the start are you mm-hmm yeah because the cap was you know an absolute nightmare in that sense if someone was off sick or um, you know, someone wanted to book a weekend off for a wedding, it would either be myself covering it or I'd need to pull someone else in to help me. Um, and, you know, it just wasn't sustainable looking back on it. I mean, I have no idea how I did it for 16 years. Um, and I think we all need to, to sort of step back. And I think COVID's been really good for that because I think people have been like, right, well, let's just shut two days a week. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's a much more um sustainable way of of working um yeah great well hopefully that will that will become the new model and and we will have hundreds of brilliant creative young and older folk coming to join up again and and bring their value and their vibrancy to the industry but i'm uh, and from that then we should have much greater respect for the people working within it um, from the general mm. public who let's face it can be a bit tricky from time to time often disappointed um, I had a theory when I was uh, last working full time as a chef uh, that you know a family would walk in without a reservation and join the queue and you knew that when they'd arrived they were already tired hungry exhausted and fed up and then they had to stand in a queue for an hour and i'm looking at them thinking as soon as you get to the front of that queue we're going to have nothing left on today's menu yeah. <laughs> and you're just thinking yeah. okay this is just going to break down and, and be a disaster yeah. before we get started so i sort of get it uh, from both sides you know you don't turn up somewhere expecting it to, to go wrong and sometimes it does but um yeah mm -hmm. great just treating each other in a human sense with a bit more care and and politeness you never know what someone else has just been through mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's it isn't it for sure and so what's your policy if people are rude to your staff you know we i had a zero tolerance for it at the calf uh -huh. and i really don't have an issue with it like i don't mean i don't have an issue with it we don't have it as an issue at the bakery yeah. um i feel very lucky in the sense that now I have an open kitchen 
and people want to chat with me and I think I have an amazing team and I think we all get treated evenly and we all get treated with respect but I think it's because we also are very friendly when you come in we try and chat with everyone and I think that makes a massive difference um, you know the cafe was a different kettle official together people would have to queue for an hour to get yeah. in um, people were grumpy before they even got in the door yeah. um, we had six people working in front of house and five in the kitchen um, it was a completely different kettle of fish you know and and I think you know I'd even got to the point where I was thinking about putting posters up in the cafe saying you know we have a zero tolerance policy to abuse because we had people in tears because people were so rude yeah. to them um, and and I just think that's really sad yeah 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 I mean we've all got grumpy at times said things we regret but I I think um you know that, that taking it out on a you know when you're in, in a busy environment and you can see that everyone's working hard you mm. know to you sort of have your duty bound at that point as a general mm. human being not to lose your rag because it's mm. just irrational uh, but people do that's what happens they get well and I just I think the the thing that's quite sad now is that cooking and foodie stuff has become really trendy because of a lot of tv programs now but people sit at home and they watch on telly and they think they're an expert <laughs> because they know all these fancy words and they they watch the bake-off and you know they watch the great british menu and i just feel like people also feel that they are their own little reviewing system now and they're always looking for fault rather than just enjoying the moment yeah 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 well, let's see what this experience will be like uh, yeah i agree i think in a lot of ways TripAdvisor and others have kind of you know there is a formula if you want to run your business to get good results on TripAdvisor, you can do that that's fine but i don't want to do that i want to go to the neighborhood joint where it might not be great this time but i might just stumble upon a brilliant meal i don't want the mm. blandness of managing everything mm -hmm. for a a set response you know i just don't, yeah. i just can't cope with that it's, it's anodyne it's dull it leads to vastly elongated food acquiring systems and it's mm. it's just everything i hate i would rather have a disappointing meal that someone's tried hard to get right than than yes. something bland and, and and anodyne you know that's just where i am with it definitely like I feel very fortunate with the bakery because it's very unassuming you drive into an industrial area probably not expecting very much and you come through the door and you're faced with a whole heap of stuff that I've been baking since half four in the morning um, and you're served by Karen who is um, ex Glen Eagles and three chimneys you know she's had a whole host of front of house experience but she's there in her tracky bottoms and chatting to everyone really relaxed and then I've got you know Megan who I'm training and she's amazing on the coffee machine and I think people are genuinely just like wow this is really cool um and I think you know with the cafe we were on the high street of Aviemore it's a very busy town people had expectations of what it had mm. to be so, well, good for you yeah. for operating outside of the <laughs> outside of the norm. I like it. It's a model I'm impressed with. I'm liking. I'm enjoying finding out more about how you run it. That's great, um, and the people involved. And I, I'm a great believer actually that doing something different and, and more positive will then attract other people towards you. You know, so you won't have staff shortages to the same extent mm. that others do because you know people are attracted towards being there. Well, okay. Well, point number two is taking us down a few blind alleys. We've had a good. <laughs> I, 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 I've, I stole it halfway through and made it my own, which is one of my favourite habits. Um, so I think we, we should sort of carefully put a you know a VIP area cordon around uh, around point number two. Take a deep breath and plunge in with the third thing that you'd like to change about the world of food. I'm intrigued. Right. So we've already touched a wee bit on it. So it is about the word chef <laughs> or the name chef. Go. 
So uh, now I'm going to get really ranty. No, I'm not really. Um, I do think it's an abused term and a, an abused title. And I think, you know, we all need to step back and think, like, what defines a chef? You know, you wouldn't train as a for a year and call yourself a doctor. Um, now, I, I don't mean that in a pretentious, snobby way. Um, I just think that we all work really hard to get to the level that we're at. And then when I had the calf, I'd see CVs coming in and people would be calling themselves a chef, but they had worked in a place that was, um, I don't want to name names, but a place that would buy in, like, say, shredded lettuce and fire it on a wrap and chuck a bit of chicken yeah. on it, and they would call themselves a chef. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for me, I don't call myself a baker because I don't feel I deserve to be called a baker yet. Maybe in five years' time I might consider it. <laughs> I call myself a chef learning to bake um, because I don't know enough yet. And I just... It just really upsets me because I've worked for 20 years to get to the level that I'm at and then you get to see someone that has done six months in a kitchen buying in pre-prepared stuff and they're calling themselves the same title or the same name as, as me. Mm. Mm. So no, that's my grumpy No, grumpy. it's okay. I find it's quite, it's quite interesting because I think it's very personal because I think of myself as more of a, 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 as a, as a cook. I went to college and trained as a chef and I worked as a professional chef, a commie chef, a demi chef to party, a chef to party, junior sous chef, a sous chef, and then eventually, um, <laughs> almost by accident, a head chef. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think for me, I think of myself as a cook because I don't, I define what I do as cooking because I gather things, you know, that are interviews and yes. I bring them together mm -hmm. and then I make something of them. But I don't really know why I think that, because there are plenty of chefs, self-defined chefs across uh, continental Europe, England, uh, Scotland and beyond who are doing exactly that and happy to call themselves a chef. So I think maybe that's just my own particular fussiness. Like, I think being a bit more organic with this, I think I would like to see more people in the world talking the way you are, being happy to call themselves a cook, you know, in, in the sense of it's just down to earth you're trained but you're so down to earth and probably don't big yourself up very much but you're incredibly talented you know I think I'd like to see it that way rather than like oh I'm a chef you know um uh I was gonna swear there so I don't <laughs> <laughs> my poop doesn't smell because I'm a yeah, chef <laughs> do you know I don't mean that we need to all be arrogant I just think there just needs to be a slight shift in the level of respect you know like um i know some of your background and i feel that you are well um entitled to be calling yourself chef with the capital c mate <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much um so uh, i think the less said about my past the better but uh, uh, I, okay so here's the thing let's take it back to the industry right because i'm feeling like i'm with you okay if i saw the cv from the guy uh from chicken village or wherever it was that we were pretending we weren't going to mention um what's it called <laughs> nando somewhere like that yeah, if yeah. It, i've got respect for anyone who works hard at their job and does a good job okay i'm sure that you Absolutely. can go and work for wagamamas nando's somewhere like that and not be good at it right so I, i'm not yeah. taking any respect from anyone who's walked in there and taken that job as a you know whatever level of chef that they're calling that within their food prep production system mm -hmm. But I am, I am with you totally in that I would expect a chef, you know, at chef to party level or, you know, which for those of you who are not out there who are not in the industry is someone who runs a section in a kitchen or can run part of a service. Um, mm -hmm. I would expect them to have the basic skills and ability to make fresh sauces, butcher their own chicken, put together or follow a simple recipe and prepare vegetables from fresh. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know how we sort out this definition thing. I think it has to be an educational thing for people out there reading it because I can't see us ever getting, uh, you know, half of the industry to call them food service operatives or something, you know, which doesn't feel fair either. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, how do we redefine it? Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, I sort of, I totally get where you're coming from, but I think it's just one of those mm -hmm. things where we just have to be educated 
enough. And then when people come to you and say, oh, I'm a, I'm a chef to party and you look at their CV and go, wait, actually, you haven't got the experience to do that job here. Mm-hmm. But if you'd like to achieve that job here, maybe we could start you on this job here and begin with a bit more building up because they're going to have some transferable skills, right? Presumably, mm-hmm. if you can run a busy kitchen in a, a busy section in a, shall we say, non-fresh food production business, you can cope with that high pressure, busy buzz in service time where you're juggling tickets and coping with orders changing and things like that. So that is a skill that could move to a fresh food business. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so I get, I totally get it. I totally get it. I'm just not sure how we would, how we would go about and define that. <laughs> no. No, but I'm in La La Land right Oh, okay. Now. Yeah, no, that's right. You're there. I mean, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Tim's La La Land now, so I can just pretend that. Yeah, that fine. Okay, let's press the button. Anyone out there calling themselves <laughs> chef who can't make a bechamel sauce, a green sauce, butcher a chicken, fillet a fish, or raise a simple dough, I'm sorry, but your, your, your job description just changed. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I love my new world. <laughs> it's brilliant here. Uh, okay, this is all part of my problem. I'm too busy trying to keep everyone happy. That's my problem. Okay, so uh, so the we think uh, we, what we're saying is the word chef needs some definition. You know, and that also also I think comes back a little bit to the respectfulness issue from from part two as well. So I like that. I like that. What would be the before we move out of this? What would be uh, can you give us five skills that you would expect them to have? I mean, I might have just spoiled that slightly, but it doesn't matter. I think so. you have spoiled it, Tim. You've ruined oh, it all. Sorry. But yeah, no, I, <laughs> I think as well, like I, I think all of your points, you know, white sauce, green sauce, butchering, that's fab. And I think also being able to put together textures, I, that's something that I think a lot of people can't do, you know, putting together that sweet and sour or that, um, you know, like a lovely soft, um, salad but putting in that crunch or a bit of goat's cheese or um, yeah just being able to put those textures together I was at a place um, at the Bossy um, in Burkhead and I know that you're quite heavily involved with the, the menus and I had uh, the carrot hummus and it was amazing it was the titties um, it was lovely and smooth it had great flavor it had some crunchy carrot bits on the side um, and then it had some lovely duke nuts over it you know and I just feel that people could learn a lot from those kind of dishes where where there's more textures yeah layers layers of stuff yeah I had a lot of fun uh, at, at the Bothy um, when the, when uh, when they were sort of coming back to life just helping them with some menu ideas um and that was that was good fun and they they seem to have um to taken off and cracking on doing their own stuff now which is is amazing it's great to see and it's nice that's one of the fun bits about consultancy is you get to have a little bit of influence over a business for a while and then watch it go off in its next new sort of bit of its adventure which is just for me one of the things i love about the industry side of, of my job um yeah, it must be really rewarding. Yeah, well, it, well, it, yeah, I mean, it's challenging as well, and quite often, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of pressure there because if you come up with something and you you champion it as a good idea and it tanks, then <laughs> you can you can look like the proverbial omelette chef, as it were. So, so that, there's that. I, I'm, but I'm with you. I think that that you need an understanding and knowledge of food to be a chef, and that that doesn't come overnight. Um, I know some some people who've never cooked professionally who I would rate as some of the best cooks whose food I've ever eaten you know so I think you know you don't need to be a, a chef to become an incredible cook but there is something different about you know that part that daily professional basis you've got to be able to turn up bring your game every day um deal with what's going on at work cope with the rest of your life or you know just ignore it uh, until the end of the day and and then carry on and I think that's part of part of the chef thing as well okay so we've improved and I, I also just to add into that I don't think that we all have to be college trained to be really good chefs no. do you know it's just having that work experience and that cooking under mm-hmm. your belt I don't think you need to go to college to, to be called a chef either quite frankly in fact no. for me that was one of the things that was misleading I left college at proudly clutching my head chef certificate to walk into my first job (laughs) (laughs) and be very firmly told in no uncertain terms uh, that I wouldn't be making any menu choices just yet. (laughs) That's brilliant. I bet you looked really cute with your big talk hat on as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, those were the days. Uh, those were the days. Yeah. Uh, begin your training again, sir. Yes, one of them. Okay. All right. Well, look, I think you've changed three great things about the world of food, uh, made the world a better place. Um, it's, it's a shame that we have to leave that world now, but I think you know we can we can take those ideas close to our heart, bring them with us, and uh, and put them put them to practice within uh, within our own lives and worlds and businesses, and, and that will only help to sort of make things better. So we'll do that, but we'll go back to the normal world now. Uh, it, as long as you're happy, you're finished with your Absolutely. three things. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like I've had a counselling session, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm just writing an invoice. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, and then, okay, here's the next thing then. Um, you know, we're back in the normal world now. You can relax. And uh, you get to you get to do three more things. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with the number three. But you get to do three more things. You get to nominate somebody as a future guest on the pod. You get to choose a food book, which is a desert island food book. And, you know, you don't have to be on an actual desert island, but if you're only allowed one food book, what would it be? And then what would you have to drink while you were perusing it? Okay, so nominating wise, I don't think she's been on your podcast, but it would be Gilly Bashan. Okay. She... Tell us a bit about her. Well, I met Gilly through doing um, the Kitchen Cafe on BBC Radio. And I just got on with her straight away when I met her because she's so down to earth. She's so easy to talk to. She's just, she's gold. Um, And her knowledge and her history and, you know, she's got uh, her anthropology background, uh, food anthropology. She's Uh an amazing writer. And, I mean, I would say that I've learnt more in four days of cooking workshops with her than at some points in you know working in London and at catering college it's just it's fascinating to be working with a spice or a herb or any ingredient for that and her be able to just drop in when she was traveling in this area you know and where it's come from and how it got to there and it's just fascinating yeah yeah, I know her name's come up a few times in this conversation and others. And I liked her when I met her as well. Um, so I'm very happy uh, to follow that one up. I think Gilly would be a great guest. So uh, can't wait, quite frankly. Okay, well, I mean, that set you up with a strong game. So what are you going to read? Uh, I was really struggling to choose between two books. Um, oh, okay, we get this uh, a lot. And just to warn you, you don't get to list them all. I know, it's just... <laughs> Oh, I know. I'll give you two. You can tell us what the two were, but then you have to choose a one. Okay, so it was between The Ethical Carnivore by Louise Gray. Oh, Lou Gray, yeah. That is just, that book was life-changing for me. And the other book was Tracy Lawson, A Year in the Village of Eternity. Oh, I've never heard so of that. So I'll, I'll talk about that one because it is, I've, it's my most well-thumbed book. Um, it is a book based on a journalist who's British who spends half of her time in Italy and half of her time in the UK. Uh, she's a food writer and she goes to a small village in central Italy and it's like a population of about, I think it's six or 700 people, but it's the village of where everyone lives for like 25 million years. <laughs> <laughs> No, the average life expectancy is about 98 in this village. And it sits above the Adriatic Sea and each chapter is a different animal or ingredient and it's about how she, she basically spends a year cooking with the locals and it's all about seasonality. And it's just brilliant. Like January is pigs and um, February is cinnamon. Um, you know, she goes out with, uh, with the farmers and, and actually picks the food and then she goes and she's with the wives and she's cooking with them and learning and, and it's just, it's one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. It sounds great. I'm in. I'm going to be buying a copy of that this afternoon, I can tell, uh, and having that on the way. Um, if you enjoyed The Ethical Carnivore by Lou Gray, can I recommend a book called um, Meat? Okay. The uh, uh, the Benign Extravagance. Mm. Uh, 
by a guy called uh, Farley is his surname. I'm going to say Simon, but I'm not sure that's okay. right. But Farley surname, well worth uh, well worth a, a look at that as well, particularly in these neo vegan lands. But um, wow, it's a great a great choice of book, uh, um, and I love it when it's something that I haven't read, so I get to go off and use that as an excuse to buy something. So it was a year in uh, a year in the village of eternity by Tracy Lawson. Yeah. Of eternity. Okay, let's hope it was a good year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I love, I love Italian cuisine, and I, I, actually, what I really love is they have a thing, a movement in Italy called Cucina Povera, the, the pauper's kitchen, mm. um, which is a sort of response. It's an element of the slow food movement, yeah. and it's all about, you know, not losing those skills that people had. And I think, you know, for me, that's something that that defines someone who can mm-hmm. cook, really. It's the ability to walk around a garden that's empty, a larder which is scant, yeah. and turn up a, a meal of brilliance that not only is sustenance and will keep you well, mm-hmm. but tastes great too. I mean, that is, you know, what you can't do with a couple of dried out old anchovies yeah. uh, and some a handful of dandelions. You know, I mean, some people can just turn that into magic, and mm-hmm. I love that. So, and this, uh, this author of, of this book, she they go through the whole like jarring of all the vegetables and everything so there's no waste and they've got fresh food that's being pickled or jarred throughout the winter and it's just fabulous. Amazing. Tracy Lawson, I'm looking her up. Okay, and then finally, what are you going to drink while you're reading A Year in the Village of Eternity? I think it would have to be a cold, crisp glass of white wine. So I've recently subscribed to this wine club and I'm trying okay. to drink European wines because I always grab Kiwi Sauv Blanc and I feel like such a mongrel because I don't know anything about European stuff. Well, and, and there's a food miles issue there yes, as well, yes. isn't there? I mean, that's kind of the other side of the globe. I mean, we're all a fan of a, of a, of a really great New Zealand white. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But um, yeah, I'm with you. And, and I think... There are some great, and actually, if we go even more micro than that, there's some incredible British white wines. Yes, so in part of the subscription recently, I got a bottle of bubbly English wine, and it was fabulous. It was really good. Can you remember? Uh, No, I can't remember. Okay. All right, there's a few out there. The Camel Valley's pretty good. The Chapel Down is also fairly Chapel Down, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, well done, you. Might be one of those top, those top three. Uh, I think that, that if you look out for a grape called Bacchus, which is the Greek wine, a god of wine and enjoyment, um, then he's your man, I think, for a really cracking English white. Um, okay. Bacchus is a brilliant variety. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness. KJ, what a chat. I know. What a chefy chat as well for you. <laughs> no, not to mention not to mention the beneficial... Um, good that i've done you by being a sample <laughs> for your ideas that's that concept see um lastly before i boot you off all together and we say to the pit for the time being and i scurry off to the editing suite to try and remove the gaps created by the inefficient internet of granton um <laughs> i got a I, I got a question for you you've written you wrote a cookbook about the brilliant cafe that sadly is no more yep are we expecting any more words from you I am currently working on the story of the mountain calf. Oh, um, my goodness. Hang on. World exclusive here on the Madam's cast. Okay, tell me, tell me. Uh, did you ever watch Hotel Babylon? Yes. Well, a bit of it. I th- I don't, I'm not a big TV head. Yeah, no, we don't even own a TV. But it's going to be a kind of bird's eye view of how the calf happened, why it happened, Um it's a bit like a memoir to the mountain calf, and yes. I'm, I'm, I'm working hard on that at the moment. Amazing, amazing. And, uh, there'll definitely be a second cookbook. Um, uh, people say that the second cookbook is always the hardest because there's expectations with the second one. The first one, I went at it blind. I had no idea that it was going to be so well received. Yeah. Uh, the second one is terrifying me a little bit. I, I have to admit. Well, that's not something I can offer you any advice on because um, all I've ever had from my second cookbook is knockbacks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that the first one I wrote wasn't that good. <laughs> oh, mate, you need to go and see my publisher. She's awesome. 
Oh, is she? Oh, great. Well, let's. Okay. Oh, I don't want to steal your publisher. That won't go well. Uh, oh, okay. No, don't be daft. We can share publisher. <laughs> share a publisher. Brilliant. Okay. Well, listen, Kirsten, that's put some joy in my heart. Um, it's really been a pleasure to chat to you and interesting to hear some of your thoughts come together uh, uh, during the recording. So thanks for taking out the time. If people are interested uh, in finding out more about you and the Botty Bakery, I mean, where, where can we find out more? Online, presumably? Yeah, so we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram um, and we're just at Bossy Bakery. That's it. Simple um, and straightforward. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not very good at social media. Um, I have I have youth working for me doing that. <laughs> um, let me just double check. Yeah, actually, sorry. It's KJ's Bossy Bakery. My bad. Okay, okay, great. Well, I guess if we go to a popular search engine and search for you and the Botany Bakery, we'll be able to find it. Awesome. Okie dokie. Amazing. Thanks for having me on, mate. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking part in the Madam's Cast. It's been a joy to chat to you. Um, Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, nice one. Take care, mate. Cheers. Bye.